Well, we have been in a series together of prayer, uh, looking at the book of Psalms, uh, the prayer book of the Bible, learning how to pray together as a community. But this morning, and I made mention of this this week in, in the church email, we're going to hit pause on our series in the book of Psalms. And what I want to do this morning is I want to talk a little bit about how we as a church are called by the scriptures to respond to the world, particularly in a rapidly changing culture, the kind of rapidly changing culture that we find ourselves in now. And as many of you know, hopefully if you haven't been living under a rock for the past two weeks, about a week and a half ago, a significant event happened in the life of our nation, our country. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, handed down a decision which essentially redefines marriage for the entire country. Uh, gay marriage was legalized in all 50 states, and it was a very momentous, uh, history-shaping kind of decision. And, of course, it was not entirely out of the blue. Um, I'm sure we're all aware that our culture has been fairly rapidly changing for some time now. Uh, I think even of about a month ago, the Vanity Fair cover that came out where one of the icons of America, uh, Bruce Jenner, the Olympic gold medalist from the Olympics in the 70s, um, actually came out and said that he was transitioning to now become a woman. And this was the cover of Vanity Fair. And of course, all of the media and, and everything around us was just taken up by this very public uh, kind of shift. And then after the ruling of the Supreme Court just a week and a half ago, uh, I'm sure you all saw just the, um, the celebration that swept the culture. And even as this image really sticks in my mind, the picture of the White House lit up like a rainbow flag. Did you see this? It was very, very shocking, very disturbing to see. And we find ourselves in a culture that is rapidly changing all around us. And it's, it's nothing new for culture to be changing. In fact, culture is always changing, which is a great reason not to look to the culture in order to be our standard, our measure of truth, obviously, because if you wait just a minute, it'll change. But we do find ourselves in the midst of a culture that is changing. And what I think is unique about our day today is not that it's changing, but rather with the speed with which it is changing. It's very rapid. I mean, even to consider this small fact, the president of our country, who was um, in the White House that was lit up like the rainbow flag, just four years ago himself opposed gay marriage. I think it just gives you a sense of how quickly opinions and views are shifting literally throughout the country. And it's not in a particular political party, but it's really shaping every facet of our culture. And now as we as believers see this, it is very disconcerting, is it not? What were some of the things that you felt this week as you saw this happening? What did you feel as you've seen all of this taking place? Just for just a second, share with each other. Yeah. I, I think it's a, you know, the, the reality is we're, we're probably feeling uh, fear. Uh, we might even be feeling outrage, confusion, sadness, hopefully sadness. 
But what I think that we're going to see, and this is what you're pointing out here, is I think we're primarily going to see two different types of reactions to this. Neither of which I think is what uh, the scriptures call us to uh, as a people. One reaction is the reaction of outrage, of anger, of retreating from the world or condemning the world. And that's going to be a very popular response. And we probably might even see that kind of response even in our own hearts as we see it. This kind of resentment, this kind of opposition welling up in our heart. Well, I think, in, in, I think there's going to be an opposite reaction that we're going to see that's very, going to be very popular in the culture as well. And that is of uh, a total acceptance of the norms of the culture. Kind of a, a following culture, a looking to culture to kind of define how do we understand, how do we form our values, how are we to live. You see these two ends, these two extremes of the spectrum. One extreme would seek to emphasize truth and then often in doing so... Uh, can be very judgmental and on the other end of the spectrum would want to emphasize love and grace and yet at the same time there's a lack of truth and there's kind of a, a, a caving in and a following of the culture. Neither response is what God calls us to in the scriptures. And I think in our passage, the Apostle Paul gives us a great pattern, a great calling of how are we to respond? How are we as God's people to live in the midst of of a changing culture? How do we bear witness to Jesus Christ? Now, as we come to our passage, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. This was a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Now, if you're a little alarmed by living in uh, this uh, current culture in the 21st century, uh, just be glad you did not live in Corinth. Corinth was about, uh, about 10 clicks to the left of San Francisco. Corinth was a very morally upside-down city. Uh, Corinth was a, a very prominent city in the Roman Empire and was very proud of their uh, sophisticated, modern uh, values. It was a, a, a city in which adultery was embraced, sexual promiscuity was fully practiced and accepted throughout, throughout the city. And in fact, there were numerous... Uh, uh, pagan temples throughout the city, and a common practice in pagan worship would be for worshipers to go to the temples and to actually engage in sexual activity with temple prostitutes. This was a way that was seen as stirring up the gods and, and, and gaining the favor of the gods. I mean, it's hard to even imagine being in a culture like that, but yet that was the culture that the church in Corinth found themselves in the midst of. And so I think right off the bat, it gives us a sense. It gives us a sense that what we're facing is really nothing new. And I think it also gives us courage to see this church was standing in the midst of that kind of culture. And yet, over 2,000 years, the church has remained. It was not time to fear the fall of the church by any means. But the church in Corinth was struggling in order to be faithful in the midst of that culture. And their particular struggle was actually one of following the values of the culture, as we'll see in just a minute. And Paul says this, in verse, beginning at verse 9, where he seeks to correct and to say, this is how you are to live faithfully in the world. And look at what he says here. Verse 9, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world altogether. Now, Paul is referring here to a previous letter that he had written to the church in Corinth. And in that letter, you can see here, he had written in there for them to separate from those who were sexually immoral. And the response of the church had been, wait a minute. What does Paul just want us to separate and pull back from the world altogether? And so Paul writes here to correct that, and he says, absolutely not. I'm not calling you to disassociate from the world. I'm not calling you to retreat from the world, to retreat into your holy huddle so that you can be safe and unpolluted from the world. The exact opposite. What Paul had called believers to over and over and over to was to engage the world. To be in the world, though not of the world. Because the world are the very people that we so deeply long to come to know Jesus. So Paul says, I was not at all referring for you separating and pulling back from the world. Those are the very people that we are to move towards. That we are to offer the gospel to. Paul is calling for an engagement with the world. But yet, look at the balance of what he says right after that. In verse 11. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So what is Paul talking about here? He's saying, whenever I said that to you in the first letter, I was not referring for you to pull back and disassociate from the world, but rather from those who profess to be believers, who are within the church, but yet, as a pattern of their life, fully give themselves to this lifestyle. Now, if you'll notice something about the the list that he lays out here, it's not necessarily the list that we would have put together, right? Yes, he begins with sexual immorality, But do you notice what he includes in the little list here? Look at this. He mentions greed and slander, among other things, which are kind of sins that are talked about a great deal in the Bible, but sins that we just don't think two seconds about. Yes, sexual immorality is high on our radar, as it should be. But things like greed? Well, who even thinks about that? But yet at the same time, I cannot think of a sin that's more true of Americans than greed. It's literally in our DNA to be controlled by more money or more stuff. It literally drives our economy. But yet we don't think twice about that. But yet in this list, he includes greed and slander. Think about slander, a gossip. I mean, when was the last time that you found yourself speaking harshly about a person who was not present? I mean, maybe we should ask, How many times this morning have we done that, right? So you see the list includes a broad spectrum of sins here. Now what is he talking about that that, that we're to celebrate, uh, separate from anyone who would practice these things at all? No, he's talking about people who are not, he's not talking about people who are struggling. He's talking about people who are not struggling at all. In other words, they're fully embracing these as patterns of their life and also condoning them. There's a certain situation going on in Corinth that he is addressing here. You pick it out at the very beginning of chapter 5, just in verse 1. Turn over to verse 1. He says, 
who he's addressing a specific situation in the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. And then he tells us what it is. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. See, here's what was happening here. The church at Corinth was struggling in many ways with sexual immorality, but there was a particular situation in which a, a member of the church had actually been, uh, had entered into a sexual relationship with their stepmother. It was a very public sin, and the church not only was not addressing it, not a dealing with it, they were actually proud of their acceptance of it. The, the, the church was almost saying, we're, we're so cosmopolitan, we're so modern, we're so enlightened that we're able to accept absolutely everything. We are a church of grace, so therefore, we don't worry about these things. Everything's permissible. And so Paul is calling them out to say, you are called to be holy. And you've got to deal with these kind of things in your midst. What Paul is addressing here is what's called church discipline. That is accountability. Speaking truth to one another. Caring about how we're living together. Recognizing that we together are a community that are responsible for one another. He uses the word judge here. Are we not to judge those inside the church? He's not talking about looking down upon one another or passing judgment upon one another, but rather being discernible about one another's lives in speaking truth. We're called to actually care about how we live. We're actually also told that, that sin is not a private matter. We very much tend to think it's that way because we live in a very individualistic culture. We think my sin and my lifestyle is my business. And therefore, it doesn't affect anybody else. But the Bible shows us something very different. We are called to be a people, together, united to one another. Whenever we come to faith in Christ and we are united to Him, we are also united to one another. And so together as a church, we are called to be holy through our lives to offer a picture to the world of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And so what Paul is calling the church here too is a discipline, is a uh, accountable relationships in which they speak truth to one another and care about how one another lives. Now let me just say this, because I realize this idea of confronting and speaking up and disciplining uh, church discipline is a very foreign concept to our modern ears. And let me also say this, is I know that there are many of us in here that have experienced a very distorted aspect of what Paul's calling for here. I've heard the stories. I know some of you have actually been ostracized and shamed and publicly beaten up by churches, or else many, of, many others of you have seen it done to other people. And let me just say, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about restoring someone. He's talking about in love coming and speaking the truth, and when someone refuses that, you put them out of the church in order that they might come to repentance and be restored to fellowship with Jesus. So, what so many of us have seen as a distortion of this, that itself should be discipline. But we can't go to the other extreme and say, it doesn't matter how we live as a people. So here's the idea of what Paul's calling us to here. As we think about our interaction with the world, Paul is saying, listen, it's not our job to judge the world. That's not our calling. That's not our business. 
God will take care of that. And why would we expect the world to live with our values? Why would we expect the world to live as if they're followers of Jesus, but yet have not had their hearts changed by Jesus? It really doesn't make much sense. Why would our posture to the world be like, our job is to go and tell the world all the ways that they are wrong. Paul says, that's not my job. God will take care of that. But here's what your job is. Worry about you. Worry about being the kind of people that He has called us to be. Worry about being a holy people. Through our relationships in our lives, we model what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we bear witness to the world. That is primarily what we were called to in the Word. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, let your light shine before men. That's that aspect of being in the world and allowing people to see who we are and what our lives are like. But then he clarifies what that means. That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You see, that's our calling. Our calling is to live the kind of lives, to fully embody our values in such a way that the world sees it and says, wow, there must really be a God. Look at their relationship. Look at the ways that they accept one another and support one another and care for one another. Look at the ways in which they love the world and serve the world and love their neighbor. And as the world sees that, it becomes a powerful witness to where we actually have the opportunity to say, let me speak truth to you. See, it's not saying that you don't ever speak truth, but it's saying that that's not primarily your job to the world. A pastor that I like to follow a good bit is a pastor of a church in Los Angeles. His name's Rankin Wilburn. He recently in a sermon said this, and I think he really captures uh, what often takes place among us. He says, we as a church tend to speak more truth to those outside the church and more grace to those inside the church instead of just the opposite way, of a, way around, which is what we're called to in Scripture. We tend to speak more truth to the world and yet more grace to one another in the church when we don't necessarily need to hear that. You know, Jesus, if you look at his life and you look at the ways that he spoke to the people outside of the church and the people inside of the church, we see something very different than often happens among us. To those who are outside, like the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4, a woman who was living in sexual immorality, Jesus comes to her tenderly and welcomes her to himself. He asks her for a drink and then offers her living water himself. He comes in love and tenderness to approach her and to offer her life. Jesus also, in speaking to those outside, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You will find rest in me. But yet to his disciples, to those on the inside, he says things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone who loves his mother or father, his spouse, his children, his home, his land, anything more than me is not worthy of me. He who would lose his life for me will save it. You see, Jesus, to those who were on the inside, to his followers, he spoke truth. Not apart from grace, not apart from love, 
But he spoke to them in such a way that he called them to something more. And you see, that is love. Jesus comes to us and accepts us right where we are, no matter what, but he never leaves us there. And to those who have entered into a relationship with him, he's always calling us forward, always speaking truth to us. And as a church, oftentimes we don't speak in the way that he does. Just recently, uh, a friend of mine was at Riverbend, and she had taken with her to Riverbend her sons. Um, Her sons were in town, her adult children, and they've kind of walked away from the church. They're not following Jesus. They've kind of reacted negatively to the church and not just, just not sure what they think about Jesus. And they were together at Riverbend, and they walked by this person who was at Riverbend. You've probably seen this person or someone like it. And they're sitting there, and they have a big cross, and they're yelling at the crowds. They're telling everybody that they're going to hell. They're speaking truth to them, right? And the reaction of her boys was like, if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, I don't want any part of it. You see, what was the problem? The problem was that truth was being spoken to the world, to those on the outside, while not enough truth was being spoken to those who were inside. Someone needs to say to that person, what are you doing? Your spirit is all wrong. They need to be spoken truth too. They need to hear truth. But then also as the church looks at us, what do they see? Do they see our lives fully embracing what we say to the world or our values? Do they see us honoring marriage? Do they see us loving our neighbor? Do they see us slandering the world? Do they see us as greedy? I'm afraid they do. You see, Paul comes to us and he says, your responsibility is not to change the world and not to tell them how they've been wrong and how they get to get right. Your responsibility is to be the kind of holy people he's called you to be and then love the world. I'll take care of the rest. That's our response. I think this is embodied brilliantly in a story that I've become aware of. It's the story of a woman. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. This woman in the late 90s was a a lesbian, leftist leader in the gay rights movement. And she was a tenured professor of English and women's studies at the University of Syracuse. Brilliant woman. And... Whenever Promise Keepers came through New York, she wrote an article critiquing Christianity and their response to the world. And in response to her paper, she got all kinds of responses and letters from all kinds of people. And she had two boxes on her desk that she put all the letters into. And every single letter that came through fit in one of two boxes. One box was the one that was from all the Christians. And they were seething. And they were hateful, and they were angry and condemning of her. And every letter that she got that opposed her only bolstered her convictions. And the other box was filled with those who wrote all of their letters that were supporting her movement, that are like, you're a leader for our movement, you are standing for truth, we love you, we support you. And every letter fit in one of those two boxes. But then she got a letter that did not fit her filing system. It was from a pastor in her own town. Syracuse, New York. It was not seething. It was not condemning. In fact, it was kind and loving. 
and but yet at the same time ask some honest questions. He said in the letter, listen, I'd like to just know a few things about your life. I'd love to know your story. I'd love to know what do you base all of your conclusions on. I'd love to know, have you ever read the Bible? And what do you think about it? I'd love to know if you really believe that God exists or not. And I'd love to talk about those things. In fact, I'd love to have you into my home for dinner one time. The letter struck her. She didn't know what to do with it. She didn't know how to answer the questions that he was posing. In fact, no one had ever asked those questions. She had been around Christians a lot in her life, and usually she had been condemned, but never asked honest, searching questions. So she threw it away, but she couldn't get it out of her mind. That night, she found herself rummaging through the recycle bin at Syracuse University. It sat on her desk for a week, and then she thought, for the sake of my research, I'll go and have dinner at his house. And she went into his home, and he and his wife welcomed her in, and they loved her. And that first dinner that they came together, he began their time in prayer. And in his prayer, she says he was honest, he was vulnerable, and he even confessed his sins to the Lord specifically in front of me. He asked forgiveness for ways that he had been careless in his speech towards other people. And it made a deep impression upon her. And they began to love her and they actually formed a friendship that lasted about two years. And then one morning... Finally, she came to church and she heard him preach that morning on John 7 where Jesus says, anyone who would obey will know the truth. And God struck her with, I can't first understand this. I just have to come and surrender myself to Jesus. And she came stumbling, all broken up inside into the arms of Jesus. She calls it my train wreck conversion. It's a tremendous story. It's a story of how a pastor embodied exactly what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. To care about the world, to be engaged with the world, to be willing to welcome the, the, the world into our lives and to go to their turf even as well. And to actually care about them and engage them. That's messy. That's dangerous. But that's the kind of mission that he calls us to. And it's through the quality of our life that will make the deepest impression on those who are outside of Christ. He models for us how to approach this. But I want to close with this. I think what most deeply shapes and compels our response to the world is the gospel itself. I want you to see where Paul goes in the very next chapter. Look in chapter 6. Beginning at verse, chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Look at what he says here. It's kind of Paul kind of summing it all up in all of his instructions here. And he begins with the truth. And he's unabashed about the truth. I don't know how you, you uh, interpret the realities of this issue in any other way. The Bible is very clear on it. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Corinthians. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves. Here we go. Here's that list that's just perfectly balanced. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
truth. But look at what he says in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. You get the gospel turn there? He reminds them, that's exactly what you were. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's reminding them, you are not different in the roots of your heart from a single person out there. That's what you were, but you see, were is past tense. That is no longer your identity. Why is it no longer your identity? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. That is no longer you because God came to you and He washed you with the blood of His Son. God came to you and rescued you out of your sin and out of the world and brought you into His kingdom entirely of grace. It had nothing to do with you and nothing to do with me. It is entirely a work of God's grace from first to last. The rescue is all bound up in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so you were washed, cleansed of all the stains of your sin. You've been sanctified, that is, set apart from the world and brought into God's new family. And you have been justified. You have been declared righteous before the sight of a holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ in your place. You see, it's got nothing to do with you. It wasn't because of your goodness. It wasn't because you figured it all out. It wasn't because you decided, all right, I'm going to get right tonight because I've been wrong too long. That's not why it happened. It happened because He came down and rescued you out of the pit. And that is the gospel. You've got to get the logic of the gospel because it's very easy to misunderstand. We do not inherit the kingdom of God by not being these things. We do not inherit the kingdom of God by existing in these patterns of life and then changing our life and we come in. That's not what he's saying. We inherit the kingdom of God entirely by a work of God's grace, rescuing us and bringing in. And then the changed life is the evidence of it. The changed life flows from what's already happened in the heart. That is the gospel. You've got to get that formula down. We don't change to get in. He brings us in entirely by grace, and then He changes you. And that's the evidence of His work in your heart. You see, as we understand the gospel, as we are rooted more deeply in it, do you see how it changes our posture to the world? No longer can you look at the world and judge the world and say, I can't believe you're like that. Won't you get right? Won't you change your life? Won't you do something about this? This is filthy. Because the gospel says... You are that man. You are just like them. And how were you brought into the kingdom? Nothing of your own doing. Nothing of your own goodness or your willpower, but entirely a work of grace. Do you see how that removes all pride and all boasting and all self-righteousness? And so therefore we look at the world and say, I'm no different from you in my nature, but yet He rescued me. He came to me when I was in the midst of running the other way, and He brought me into His kingdom. And He will do the same for you. That is our message.